Before we start, before I do the reading, I'd just like to, uh, would you please bow with me uh, so we can prepare for the reading. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here today, to read your holy word, to read the wisdom and the truth that's in it. May we set our hearts in the right place right now. And may we clear our minds so that we can read and understand the way you would like us to understand it. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. So the reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, from the New International Version. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in the hands, in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Good morning, church. What a wonderful day to be together to worship our God together. Most everyone here this morning understands what the word temptations mean. But to give a definition off the top of our head would be a little bit harder to do. So I looked in the Thorndike Dictionary, one that I've had for many, many, many years. It says, temptation Attraction, lure, enticement, inducement. And the word tempt, to make or try to make a person do something. To lure, to inveigle, to decoy. Everyone is tempted in different ways. Your temptation might not be my temptation. And I think sometimes age has something to do with the temptations we face as human beings, as we go through life. But I want to make a couple of comparisons. First, I want to compare temptation to fishing. The attraction to the fish is the multicolored lure. Or, if you're fishing with minnows, to that little dead minnow on the end of a sharp, barbed hook. Once the fish is hooked, it is too late. He is soon out of his element, and flopping around on the beach. 
Another example. If you watch the hunting channel, ladies, you're accepted, but for those of us who are men, we sometimes like to watch the hunting channel. And if you watch turkey hunting, the turkey hunters all, just about always, set up a decoy. And then they make, they gobble and make like it's a, a hen turkey. And soon you'll see the, the gobblers coming out towards the lure. Once they get so close, it's curtains for the turkey. And so temptations can be, can be explained, I guess, or compared something to that. But I'd like to read what the Apostle Paul says, because I think this is a very powerful verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, Paul says, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, I understand that there are many, many, many other temptations than sexual temptations. But I read this one because Paul uses such graphic language of how to avoid those kinds of sins when he uses the word flee. And I remember being told as a young Christian of two men who were faced with a situation that they felt could lead them into something they actually ran away from that situation. So the idea here is if someone or something is tempting you to sexual immorality or some other sin, run away, flee. Look at how serious Paul viewed this manner in verse 18. When he tells us to flee from immorality, he says, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against himself. And the reason that this is so important as a Christian, that we flee from sin, is he says, Or do you not know your body, what we live in right now, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that we have in us from God, and that we are not our own. See, our lives are not just for us to do with whatever we wish. Once we become a Christian, we belong to God. We belong to Christ, and our lives are to be lived in such a way. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of resist temptations like Jesus. And as Joe just read to us, that takes us right back to the very start of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. But before, before we get there, I want to read first Corinthians, or first, uh, second, first John chapter 2, if I can get this out right. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 
It's interesting, as you're turning there, to think about this, that Jesus didn't begin his ministry until after he had been tempted. He had to be tempted first. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, listen to these words. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's talk about, first off, the lust of the flesh. Look at what Matthew says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Think about that. Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's also an interesting fact that Moses, when he was led up to the mountain to be given the the law of Moses and to record the Ten Commandments on those two tablets, that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And you see, if the devil could have made Jesus sin, it would have been over for mankind. Because there would have been no salvation. We would not be here today. Because we would be without hope and without God in this world. We would have no assurance of a victory over death, of a home in the glory and the beauty of heaven. If Jesus had not gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil... And make no mistake about it, the devil is a very powerful, powerful individual. You would not want to meet him and to have to deal with him without help, because you'd lose every time. But let's go back to this fasting and food and the importance of food. If you're a healthy person, you enjoy food. I've had people tell me before, oh, I wish I didn't like food. And so I thought about that. And I thought, you know, that's not actually something that the person really means because only people who are very sick will just push their food away and will not eat it. They have no appetite because they're in the process of dying. But if you're healthy, you like food. So don't, don't tell people, I wish I didn't like food because you're saying, I wish I wasn't healthy or something like that. Be glad that you do like food. But you've heard it said, and this is certainly one that applies to me, don't tempt me with sweets, because I have a sweet tooth, and if it's sweet, I'll probably eat it, or want to eat it. But can you imagine going 40 days without food? I read that severe starvation begins at about 35 to 40 days, and death can take place from 45 to 61 days. And so Jesus starved himself almost to the point of death when he was up there being tempted by the devil. 
And when you're without food, your thinking doesn't go quite right as well. And so it would be easier to be tempted if you are so hungry that you can't even think straight. So I have a question for you. Have you fasted 24 or 48 hours? I know you don't have to raise your hand. I just want you to think about it. Have you ever tried, have you ever been fasting for 20, say 24 or 48 hours? By the time that period is over, you're thinking more and more about the fact that you can eat when the 24 hours is over, the 48 hours, whatever, than about a lot of other things. And you can't wait to have that big breakfast, you know, bacon and eggs and all those kinds of good things. You see, the temptation to Jesus was very real. Jesus could have done what the devil said to him when he was, when he was basically on the, on starvation. Because you know that he multiplied those small fish and seven loaves. And the small fish, by the way, if the Bible commentators understand this correctly, were probably about the size of sardines. They took that little bit of food, and Jesus multiplied that food for enough to feed 4,000 men, plus the women and the children. So I thought about that for just a moment. And I know not every one of those men there probably would have been a married man. But families usually were more than just one wife and one child in those days. Usually there were several children. So the mathematics, I thought, one man, one woman, and a child. Three people times 4,000 would be at least 12,000 people Jesus fed that day out of that little bit of food. And so it would have been nothing for him to turn the stones into bread. But you'll notice what Jesus' response was to the devil. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I know all of you who are here today understand that principle because you're here. There's many people who think all they have, if they have enough to eat, they're, they're good to go. They don't realize that they need to live. On the words of God, because it is a living message, a message of hope. The principle, of course, is the importance of God's word and how it should be a part of our everyday life. Let's talk now about the pride of life as Jesus faces that one. Verses 5 through 7. And the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. You'll notice, if. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you notice that the devil knows the Bible? He can quote the Bible. Look at what Jesus said. On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, we live in a world of pride and arrogance. A world of one-upmanship. And the TV commercials are very, very... Much that way. But 
before I get into that too far, let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 and 18. 16 to 18. Moses says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers. Now what this was all about, as Moses talks to the people there, is that when they had got to Meribah, also referred to as Massah, the people complained against God because they didn't have water for themselves or their children or their families or for their flocks and herds. And they accused Moses, saying, did you lead us out into this wilderness, this desert, to kill us with thirst? Little did they remember all of the things that God had just done for them, how he had blessed them over and over again. And now in this crisis, they're mad at Moses and saying, you know, we're going to be killed here, forgetting to trust God. But before we get too, too critical of these people. Let's remember all the times God has answered our prayers. When he's listened to us and given us the answer just like that. The way we've asked it. And then when we face a difficulty, we complain. We bellyache. God, why are you doing this to me? Let's try to remember to be a thankful people. Let's try to remember our blessings. Let's try to remember to count them daily. So that we don't forget when we, when we reach those times of crisis and, and struggles. Look at also at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And this, I want to talk about just a little bit about the arrogance that, that comes into our lives. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Anything wrong with that? Not really. What's wrong with it is that they were saying, this is what I'm going to do, forgetting to take into account God. And so James reminds them, he says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. There's the attitude. Because we cannot make all our plans, and I'm, I believe in making plans. You can't go through life without having a plan of some kind. But you need to take God into account in the plans you make, because we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We might not even be here tomorrow. We might depart this very day. Heavenward bound, thank the Lord. But we can't even really say what's going to happen tomorrow. We can plan it. We can think about it. We can work towards it. And if we get to tomorrow, then we carry on. But we don't know. One of these days is going to be our last. And the plans that we've had for the future... And I think about sometimes my schedule and the things I have on my daytimer and all the things that are ahead of me, sometimes for, for weeks and sometimes even months. There's going to be one day that those things are going to be unfulfilled. Somebody else will have to do it because we do not know what life will be like tomorrow. But let me go back 
to the attitude of our world of pride and arrogance and one-upmanship, which is very evident on the TV commercials. And I'm going to come to that again in just a few moments. But let's consider what the devil tempted Jesus with right here, leaping off the pinnacle of the temple. Many years ago, this is kind of funny, many years ago, one of Stacy's young brothers thought he could fly if he only tried hard enough. One day he jumped off, they were farmers, by Stacy's family, by the way, he jumped off a hay rack of hay, and those things could get pretty high, especially if it was loose hay. He jumped off there to try and fly, probably about eight feet, but his arms didn't work as wings, and he knocked himself out. As I recall, that cured him of trying to fly. He realized that his arms were for something other than, you know, flying. The temptation of Jesus was to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and prove that he wouldn't be hurt. The devil said, Jesus, you can do it. Because the Bible says God will send his angels to make sure that you don't, don't strike your foot against a rock. You won't be hurt. Now, it's hard at this point in history to know the exact location of where the pinnacle of the temple was. But the best guess, I guess, from biblical scholars is that the pinnacle of the temple looked out into the Kidron Valley about a distance of 450 feet, 45 stories. I don't like heights, and that almost makes me ill just thinking about it. 45 feet. I wouldn't even jump off it with a parachute. Years ago, a young man intentionally jumped off a water tower at a town here in Manitoba, a distance of about 110 feet, 11 stories. He did not survive. This was a shock and a grief to the entire community who grieved over this young man's life that was gone and for his family, who were well known in the community. Jesus was tempted with the pride of life, where if he leaped off the temple and the angels did bear him up and he'd land lightly on the ground 450 feet below, then he could say to people, you know, Guinness World Book of Records, here I come. It wasn't even around then, but... Here I come. I'm the only man who's jumped that far and survived. Look at what I did. But you'll see what Jesus said to the devil. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let us remember that. The third was the lust of the eyes on limited power. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You catch that? It wasn't until after the temptations were complete that the angels did come 
and to minister to Jesus. Jesus faced those temptations on his own without any divine help. But as we think about this offer of power, I recall a statement, and I may not have this exactly right, but goes along the line of something like this, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Throughout history, there has been example after example of world leaders who have come to power and they believe that they are above the law. Just recently, a world leader said, I can pardon myself. I can pardon myself. How many people would think to even say something like that? I can pardon myself. We recognize that we have no power to pardon ourselves. I know that governors down in the United States can pardon people who are guilty of murder and give them a clean slate, so to speak. But we can't pardon other people. We can't pardon ourselves. But talking about these world leaders who start to believe their own, their own press, that they are so powerful, what is one of the first things they usually do? You probably think the same thing as me, money. These individuals all of a sudden think they have the right to the taxpayer's money. And they prove it by their exotic lifestyles, by their lavish spending, and sometimes by even taking that money and putting it into offshore accounts, into private bank accounts, because they're the leader and they think they can do anything they want. At times, when people oppose them, these same leaders who have unlimited power for a period of time kill the individuals who oppose them. Satan offered the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. There was only one requirement, only one stipulation, fall down and worship me. Question to you is, what would you do if you were offered unlimited power and unlimited wealth beyond your wildest dreams? Have you ever heard people talk about what they do if they won the lottery? I have. Very often, and I think I'd almost say even mostly, it's about themselves. Exotic trips, new homes, new professional grade Chevy trucks. (laughs) Pardon, guys, if you drive a Chevy truck, I'm not accusing you of anything. It's just that that commercial kind of bugs me. That if you buy a new Chevy truck, all of a sudden you're professional grade? Give me a break. All of the car commercials are pretty similar to that. Several several years ago, CBC did a study on those who won the lottery. And they said that after five years, the vast majority, not everyone, but the vast majority of those who had won large, large sums of money were actually worse off than before they won the money. I'm not necessarily saying that you would end up there. I'm saying I might. Well, 
I need to wrap this thing up. And so what are the takeaways we learn from resisting temptations like Jesus? What can we learn about how he handled temptations? First off, in every instance, Jesus answered the temptation of the devil, the most powerful individual in all of the universe except God. Jesus answered him with Scripture with the Word of God. As human beings, we also are tempted by Satan and by his demons, the hosts of darkness. Take courage. Listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, not just some things, He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.18 For since he himself was tempted, and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, Jesus understands each and every one of us very well. In fact, he understands us better than we understand ourselves. And Jesus is our helper. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. The one who goes before the Father on our behalf. The one who has forgiven us of all of our sins and trespasses. And so when we are tempted, ask Jesus for help. Pray. Maybe you need to flee the situation. Get out of the vicinity of where you're at, or get out of the situation, whatever it may be, as the Apostle Paul admonishes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. How about in religious matters, when you find yourself in a situation that seems to be getting a little bit heated up and and arguments are starting? In religious matters, when the scribes, who were the lawyers of the day, And the Pharisees attacked him on religious grounds. How did Jesus handle himself? You know the answer. He used scripture or parables which they could not refute. Even the sharpest sharpest minds of the day were not able to best him and leave him stuttering and confused. Those who tried to match minds with Jesus soon realized there was no match to be had. Do not be tempted to argue. When you state God's word, state the truth, that here's what it is, and hopefully you will be able to either quote or go to the scripture verse and read it so that God's word speaks, and it's not just my opinion. Or my mind that's at work here. But it's God who is at work in your life. One of my instructors, when I was in Whites Ferry Road School of Biblical Studies, made a statement that uh, is what? Probably 40 years ago that he made this statement. And he said that when he'd become a Christian, he said, I had one time studied the Bible with the attitude that I was going to win arguments. And he said... I did leave many people in the dust. He used our Western example. Shot out of the the saddle and bleeding in the dust. 
because I won the argument, but I did not win many souls. And so let's have the attitude of Peter, who says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with reverence, gentleness, and reverence. As we face our own temptations, let us remember to be gentle with those who are facing theirs. Look at those verses again. Let's just take them apart for a moment. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Be ready, be prepared to give an account for the hope that is in you as a Christian. And when you do this, do it with gentleness and with reverence. May God help each one of us to remember how Jesus faced temptations and to follow his example. Thank you.